Thank you for that introduction, Nathan. I appreciate the embarrassing photos as well. <clears throat> that was from our vacation Bible school this past summer. I got to be a superhero named Pizza Man for our Hero Headquarters Vacation Bible School. And my wife helped me with the, uh, the attire and my wonderful mustache. And then she helped me get dressed for this conference and look just a little bit better today than I did back then. I, I also want to thank my wife for a, a something else pretty cool. Uh, she allowed me to borrow this neat device. It's an iPod Touch. Uh, for our journey. I was able to take that on the plane. And it does lots of really cool, amazing things. I don't know if you've had a chance to play around with something like this, but the technology is amazing. You can listen to music. You can watch videos. You can have all sorts of different things you can play around with in it. But I think it's ironic that a high-tech device like an iPod is also something that, that has really increased something that's pretty low-tech. Uh, five years ago, if I said the word Kindle to you, you'd think of fire. Now, you think about the most gifted item in the history of Amazon.com. Here's the thing, if I have a presentation, dramatic reveal, reading is making a comeback. Woo! Some of you are more excited than others. But I think it's really cool. People are reading in more and more places than ever before. Because of devices like the iPod Touch and the Kindle and the Nook, all of these e-reader devices have really increased the number of book sales out there. E-book sales have climbed to about 10% of the entire market, and the sale of these devices have been up 193% since just last year alone. It's really moving forward. It's growing. And, and I don't know exactly why this is happening. My gut says it's just because people finally think that it's cool to read when you're holding this rather than a copy of Lord of the Rings. I, I think it just looks cooler in public that way. But regardless of the reason, regardless of the reason, I think it's great that more of us, and therefore more of you, are reading in increased numbers. But that brings up an interesting question. When we think about reading... I want us to consider, what, what are you getting from your books? What are you getting from your books? Different books contribute differently to our lives. I, I just grabbed a few random examples of books out there. Uh, we have everything from Green Eggs and Ham, Jurassic Park, Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time, the Bible. We start looking at these books and think, what do we get from them? Does it create enjoyment? And we can look through and have a, a chart here. Yes. For some people, green eggs and ham is a lot of fun. My kids have enjoyed that. Uh, other people with a sick, twisted mind enjoy a brief history of time, and that's okay. Um, does it teach information? And certainly all of them teach information to some degree, uh, even fiction you can learn from. Does it showcase talent? Yes. Does it elicit emotion? Yes. But the big question is, what about truth? Are we getting truth from this material? Because I don't know. I read Green Eggs and Ham, and I think, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of eating green eggs and ham, so maybe there's some truth there. I, I look at uh, Jurassic Park, there's, there's some truthful things in there. There's some truthful things maybe in Stephen Hawking's books. And in the Bible, you start asking people, is it true? And they're not sure. We don't want to take a real firm stand on truth. And that's not a criticism of, of anyone or any book. It's just simply an acknowledgement that uh, we have difficulties with the concept of truth. Books fill us with ideas, and we think about these ideas, but are they true? It's hard to say with certainty. We just have to start to wonder. 
Now, that question about truth, it's been around for a long time. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, it started off. Remember a guy named uh, Pontius Pilate, during the crucifixion trial of Jesus, he asked that question famously, what is truth? And taken seriously, that is a heavy question, and it leads us into some big philosophical arguments. There's a huge realm of scientific study, not scientific, but philosophical study out there where people discuss the nature of truth. The entire field of epistemology is out there where people discuss what is the nature of truth. And they can spend hours and hours with these philosophical discussions. And we could do that too this morning if we really wanted to figure out what is truth. We could delve into that subject and and we could talk about it for hours and probably leave here without a lot of satisfaction. Because philosophy can be interesting. But we don't live in a philosophical world. We live in a practical world. We live in a real world that's filled with jobs and families, mortgages and medicines, and we don't have time for the philosophical debates. But this is important because we still need truth. We still need truth. We have a need to deal with truth because practically every one of you came in this morning dealing with truth in one way or another. Just to be here in this this room this morning, you engaged in truth. You chose your clothing based on the assumption that the weatherman's forecast for for the day was in the ballpark of true. You ate cereal this morning based on the assumption that the list of ingredients in your cocoa puffs was true. It doesn't contain poisonous substances unless all of a sudden uh, puffed corn is a poisonous substance. You drove here assuming that the directions you got from Google Maps or TomTom were true. You stopped for gas and coffee, and you double-checked SportsCenter just to make sure that what you saw last night about the Rangers was true. Okay? You do all these different things, and and, and you, you, you buy something at the gas station assuming that when you pull out your debit card that the balance that you have listed is true. Although maybe we'd like that not to be quite so true. You know? Can I get an amen? Hey, and you just said amen, a word meaning truly, to some guy that you've never met before at a conference that you've never been at before, but you assume that it's going to tell you truth because the brochure says it's true, right? We assume all these things about truth. Practically, we make judgments about truth every single day. We think about it every single day, and those judgments guide us and they inform us. Now, when we're faced with reading material, we would do well to do the same thing. We should do well, to find firm conclusions about the truth of what we read. It's time to avoid being wishy-washy. We need to stand up and say firmly, this is truth, this is a lie. We do that daily with the rest of life. We need to do it with what we read. And so this morning, I feel very comfortable coming before you today and saying with absolute certainty, green eggs and ham is a lie. (laughs) I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and hams. I do not like them. Sam, I am rubbish. Okay, that's really not my main point. (laughs) This is really the more important issue, the Bible. Because I feel equally comfortable coming in front of you this morning and saying the Bible is true. This is truth. And maybe you've come to that conclusion already. Maybe you, you believe that and maybe you haven't. But either way, it's time to decide. It's time to figure this out. Because if this is true, this has some really big practical application for your life, and especially for your future. Now, we don't have time this morning to debate it from every single angle. Uh, All the epistemology, philosophical discussions out there, we don't have time to get into everything about truth. But we do have time 
to run through some very practical, everyday, common-sense tests of truth. These are some things that you use every day in your life, things that you do all the time, and they serve you very well. And so I would just ask that this morning, work with me. Let's go through some of these tests of truth and see where you stand when we look at the Bible. Let's discover the truth. You ready? Well, let's talk about first things. How do we know something is true? First of all, to start, we need to consider whether it was true in regard to past events. Because past truth matters. If you doubt me, I just want you to ask anybody who ever took this product. <clears throat> cocaine tooth drops. Cocaine toothache drops. Great for the kids, as you can see. <laughs> you know, this is, this is back from 1885, and you look through uh, advertising from this era, and you find out that actually cocaine was used in a lot of different products until about 1914 when they started to pull it. According to one manufacturer, cocaine could make the coward brave, the silent eloquent, and render the sufferer insensitive to pain. That's great. <laughs> but we, we now know just a little bit more about cocaine. We know that it might not be the best substance for us. It has a lot of dangers to it. It's highly addictive. And it's something that we probably should not be giving in place of Tylenol. This past truth is, in fact, a lie. And as such, we can ignore its claims for the present and for the future. Past truth matters because it carries over. We need to know the truth about past events. If it was true then, then it remains true now. And if it was false then, it remains false now, even if they thought it was true before. With the Bible, this issue is huge, because the Bible is filled with, with information about past events. It talks about a lot of different things that happened in the past. And so it raises the question, can we trust the Bible's claims about the past? Can we trust the Bible's claims about the past? If so, then we have to take those teachings seriously, if they're true. If not, we can safely dismiss the book as just another great piece of literature that really has no bearing on our lives today. There are a number of different ways to look at the Bible and evaluate those past truth claims, but I want to look at three everyday tests of truth that we would use. Because if it's good enough for the rest of life, it should be good enough for this. And the first truth has to do with the source. And I start thinking about the source. And here's the question. Here's the test. Do I trust the source? Do I trust the source? Now, I've spent very little time in Texas. This is my first time really, really spending any time in the area beyond a layover at DFW and, and stopping at a Whataburger on a, on a quick pass-through through West Texas. By the way, Whataburger ketchup is amazing. We had it last night. I, I love it. That's great. Um, but most of what I know about Texas, most of what I know about Texas and its people comes not from first-hand knowledge, but I, I hear these things and, and I say they're probably true. I believe that Texans love their football. Okay? I believe that Dallas is sometimes called the Big D. I believe that I should be able to get some good barbecue or Tex-Mex somewhere within a one-mile radius of wherever I stand. I've heard those things. I believe those things, and I believe them because somebody told me. People told me these things, whether these, these are from friends or whether it's from magazine authors or people who were on TV who showed it. I believe these things because people told me. Now, I don't believe everything that I've ever been told. That means you, ShamWow guy. 
but I recognize that if the source is trust, trustworthy, then I'm going to accept what they say is truth. So what happens when I apply this test to the Bible? What happens when I apply this to the Bible? Does it show me that my sources related to the Bible are trustworthy when it comes to the past truth that's out there? And in a word, yeah. Yeah. I find out a lot of different things. I start looking at it, and I say, you know what? The source has remained intact. If the Bible were a lie, I would expect that it would have been modified somewhere along the way. Instead, when I look at the Bible, I find that the Bible that I have here this morning is the same as what they had all the way back when it was written. Now, of course, there are various English translations along the way, and, and your King James Version and, and the NIV Version and, and whatever I have here, the Holman Christian Standard Version, they might read a little bit differently. But the Greek and the Hebrew text, the originals that they're based off of, are the same from when they were written. They have remained unaltered. Now, the process for figuring that out is pretty simple. You know something that was written way back in ancient history. They didn't have Xerox machines, so they had to make copies of it for it to be passed down. And to fi figure out if, if something that I'm holding is an accurate representation of what it said way back then, all I have to do is figure out when this was written, figure out when my earliest copy is, and figure out how many copies I have, and then cross-check it. You know, for example, uh, Plato the uh, philosopher there, wrote a lot of stuff between 427 and 347 B.C. He wrote some stuff back there. The earliest known copy that we have of his writings come from around 900 A.D. Okay? That means there's about 1,200 years of a gap between when he first wrote it and when we could find our earliest copy. Okay? Fair enough. Uh, things get destroyed along the way. People lose them. They misfile them. They burn them up, whatever. But we find those, and we find out that there are seven copies of that manuscript, and we cross-check them, and we look at those, and we say, you know what, those seem pretty consistent, so we're pretty confident that what we have now is the same thing that he wrote back then. Okay? We do that with all of the other texts from the ancient world, too. The writings of Caesar, the writings of Aristotle, and others. Most of these things have gaps of 500 or more years from the original writing to the copy, and we have a handful of copies that we look at, and we can compare, and we say, yeah, that's trustworthy. Okay, When we look at the New Testament, when we look at the Bible, the New Testament was written between 50 and 100 A.D., you know, different dates in there. Our earliest copies date back to 130 A.D. The gap is less than 100 years, and we look, look at the number of copies that we have to cross-check it. There are over 24,000 copies or fragments of copies that we have for cross-checking. That's pretty cool. <laughs> That's pretty good. And with evidence like that, it leaves me no doubt that what we have is intact. The source itself has remained intact over these years, so that gives me hope. That helps me understand that I trust the source. I also find out that the sources are consistent. The sources are consistent. If the Bible were a lie, I'd expect less congruency. After all, the source is a group of 40 different authors who wrote 66 books over a span of 1,500 years in three continents, in three different languages, in multiple genres. Such a book, such a collection, should have multiple discrepancies, should have a lot of inter inconsistencies, contradictions along the way. And yet when I look at the Bible and I read through it, there's no such problem. And consider this. You look back at the Old Testament. You see the Old Testament book of Kings and the Old Testament books of Chronicles. And you read through them, and you see them talking about the same time period. You see them talking about the same people, and the stories that I see in Kings match up 
with what I see in Chronicles. I go to the New Testament, and I see four separate accounts of, of the life and death and ministry of Christ and the resurrection. And I see four copies here that we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I read through them, and yeah, some of them provide some different perspectives. But just like any other group of eyewitnesses, they have different, different perspectives. They might share different details, but they all come together. They all harmonize. They all harmonize. We even find consistency between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The principles that we find in the Old Testament line up with what we see in the New Testament. The description of God that we find back there, this holy and just and loving and merciful God from the Old Testament is still the holy and just and loving and merciful God that we find in the New Testament. The sources are consistent. And the more that I read the Bible, the more amazed I am at how consistent those teachings are. The sources seem trustworthy. I also look at this and say the sources don't benefit. If I'm trying to decide if I trust a source, I, I, I want to look and say, um, you know, are these, are these sources benefiting from it? Do they have anything personal to gain from it? If it were a lie, I'd expect the Bible to be a whole lot more self-serving to its authors. But instead, <laughs> I find it to be very unflattering to its authors. Paul, as he's writing some letters, says that he is the, the chief of sinners. Woo! That's great when you're trying to write to a church crowd, right? The chief of sinners. <laughs> Matthew, one of the disciples, records how, when he's, he's talking about his experiences with Jesus, how he and the other disciples were, were clueless. Jesus is teaching, and they're just sitting there. Um, could, could you explain that? It's not very flattering. I'd like to at least, you know, you know, make myself sound a little bit better, but they're not trying to do that at all. I find that the authors, for the most part, are, are anonymous. They write these books, and they're not trying to get any credit for themselves. Tradition tells us a lot of the authors that we find, but some of them, we, we still don't even know who wrote the book of Hebrews, for sure. Uh, they, they're not trying to gain anything from writing these things. They're not trying to gain credit from this. I, I find also that the authors suffered as they're writing this material. It's one thing to be skewered by critics. It's another to experience what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. Mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. Paul himself describes his experiences in 2 Corinthians. and says how he was beaten, lashed, stoned, and shipwrecked because of this message that he's written down, that he's preached. You don't face that kind of persecution unless you're really convinced of your message. The sources are not benefiting from this, and based on that, it seems trustworthy. Do I trust the source? Yeah, the source seems trustworthy. That's an everyday test of truth that we see here that says the Bible in its past truth is correct. There's another test, okay? Let's keep going. The story. Let's talk about the story. Is the story believable? This is another everyday test of truth that we face. And you know, it got me thinking about my son, Jacob. Jacob is seven years old, and he's, a, he's full of energy, got a lot of stuff going on there, but he's, he's, he's losing teeth. You know, typical kid thing to do here. He's missing his two front teeth there. And, and he was excited when he lost his first tooth last year because he was going to go put it under his pillow for the tooth fairy. Okay, he's excited about this. And, and he puts it under there. And I, I'm not a bad parent. I, I'm really not. But... Every now and then, I'm forgetful. And uh, I went to bed that night, and I woke up the next morning, and as I sat there, it just hit me like a bolt of lightning. Oh my goodness, the tooth's still under the pillow, and I didn't put any money there. I'm sorry if I'm spoiling the message. Tooth fairy, not real. 
sorry. Uh, <laughs> but I realized I hadn't put any money under his pillow, so I'm like, okay, he's still asleep. I can do this. I go grab some quarters. I sneak into his room all, all ninja-like. Okay, I get there. I get it under his pillow. I slide it in underneath. Everything's good. I just got to get that tooth. I'm feeling around. I can't find the tooth. Okay, I'm probing and I'm probing and I'm probing and all of a sudden Jacob wakes up and he turns around and he's like, Dad, what are you doing? And I, I thought quickly and I said, Buddy, I was so excited to see what the tooth fairy would bring. I just couldn't wait. <laughs> so I pulled the pillow back and we marveled that the tooth fairy left him some money and she even left the tooth so we could save it as a keepsake. What an awesome tooth fairy it was. <laughs> Oh, kids are so gullible. you got to love it. <laughs> and, and, and my point is, they can hear the silliest stories and believe them. Now, we're not going to get into the morality of me telling such an obvious lie. That's for another conference. But the, the issue here is believability. Believability. And for that, we have to focus on the everyday test of truth. I believe some things, I believe some things because they sound realistic. There's just that ring of truth to it when I hear the story. The story seems to match the things that I've seen in real life. The details are convincing enough. And in everyday life, I decide if a story is believable. And so I wonder, what happens when I apply this test to the Bible? What happens when I apply this test to the Bible? Does it show me that the Bible is faithful for the past? And here I'm going to have to say, yeah, it does. Consider the following things. The details of the Bible stories fit known history. If it were a lie, I'd expect the Bible to be filled with made-up facts along the way, but historical and archaeological evidence verifies much of what we see in the Bible. It contains real people. The existence of these people groups that it it describes are out there. Uh, People from the Hittites to the Romans were real people. The leaders it discusses, Cyrus, Nebuchadnezzar, Caesar, Augustus, Pontius Pilate, they're all real people. We can document that. So they're, they're real. It has real places. You go to Israel today, you can find Jericho and Jerusalem and, and the Jordan River and these places that, that are in actual existence. It's not talking about Narnia or Hogwarts or Oz. This is real stuff. These are real places. And they're real events that happened. Uh, while not everything in life gets recorded for posterity, I mean, we, don't, we won't know what you got for your birthday in 500 years, okay? But a lot of the major things do get recorded. And we look through and we see details in the Bible corresponding. We see the capture of of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. It happened. It matches up. The expulsion of Christians and Jews from the city of Rome in 49 A.D. with the Edict of Claudius. It talks about it in the Bible. History backs it up. It happened. Those things match up. The details make the story believable. We do a little bit more digging. We find out the characters are all too human. When we start looking through the Bible, if this were false, I'd expect the people it describes to be too good to be true, at least when it's talking about the heroes along the way. But much like the authors who weren't too interested in self-promotion, we find out that the Bible is not too interested in putting an inflated view of its subject matter out there. The characters are believable guys. King David, hero. You know, one guy that we look to and say, this was a man of God, he was a great guy, and yet it also talks about him being an adulterer. And he arranged a murder. These are not usually qualities you want out of a hero. But there they are for us to see. Abraham, the father of our faith. And yet it talks about how he's out there lying to protect his own skin. We see other stories out there. Paul, 
one of the most influential Christians to live, starts off the story as a strict persecutor of Christians. He approves the death and imprisonment of those who believe in a resurrected Christ. This is not exactly the picture of a guy that we'd want out there. But the Bible shares it. The characters are way too human. The people are believable along the way. We also find out that the story has authentic detail. Believable stories have believable details. Stuff that you would have no reason to make up. And there's just plenty of stuff in the Bible that they would have no reason to make up the way they do it. In John 21, 11, it talks about a fishing incident involving Jesus, and it, it just throws in the detail that the boys caught 153 fish in the net. Okay, 153 fish. Why would you make that up? It's just there. First Chronicles 27.30 talks about the fact that Obil the Ishmaelite was in charge of King David's camels and Jediah the Moronithite was in charge of the donkeys. And we care why? Who would make that up? It's just, it, it seems like an insignificant detail, but there it is. In the final chapter of Colossians, Paul passes on greetings from random people like Aristarchus, Epaphras, Demas, and Justus, people that we don't know anything about. We don't know much about these guys. Why would, if they're making this stuff up, wouldn't we want to include, you know, influential people? Peter says hi. Jesus says hi. You know, he's, who's Justice? Who's Demas? Who's, who's this guy taking care of the camels and the donkeys? Nobody cares about them. Why include it unless it's true? This stuff helps me realize that the story itself is believable. And, and I, will, I will throw out the, this disclaimer. Asking, is the story believable, can be hard for a book that talks about the miraculous, that talks about virgin births and, and arcs and floods and resurrections. If the whole thing were just a bunch of superstitious stuff along the way, like Greek mythology, with fictitious characters and places and events, then, then okay, it would be fine to dismiss it. But the fact that the authors are so credible on their details, matching history, giving us realistic humans and sharing details that no one makes up. That makes it easier for us to say, you know what, it, I, I think they're telling the truth. I don't think they're making this up along the way. And if the storyline is about a God who interjects himself into history, then this could actually be plausible. So based on the story, the Bible seems trustworthy. Do I trust it? Yeah, I do. Well, the final everyday test of past truth has to do with facts. We start looking at facts here and say, do the facts line up? Do the facts line up? Now, here's a fact. Here's a fact for you. Donald Trump is a success. Donald Trump is a successful businessman. I believe that even though there are still some things that puzzle me. I struggle with the fact that uh, his enterprises have been involved in multiple bankruptcies. But most of all, I wonder how someone so powerful could have such bad hair. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, really, look at that. That's just scary. It's not right. <laughs> but it comes down to one argument. If I say, you know, I, be I, I believe this, I believe that he's a su successful businessman, I have to reconcile it with the fact of that hair. Okay? And I believe some things because I use logic. Okay? Now, on the bankruptcy issue, logic says that Trump has been able to separate his personal and his corporate finances, and so even though his company has had issues personally, he's been able to maintain a vast, vast income, and so he can be a successful businessman in terms of those results. Okay, logic says I can figure that out. On the hair issue, logic says that bad hair is a luxury you can afford if you're good at your job. 
Just, Justin Bieber, Tom Brady. I mean, I'm just saying. Bad hair is a luxury you can afford. Logic tells me that. And my point in life, my, my point is that in everyday life, we face conflicting information that we have to make sense of. And by using logic, we can, we can reconcile these, these problems and say, okay, I think I figured out the truth. We can see that logic says riding on an airplane is pretty safe, even though that I know some people have died doing it. I can say that texting while driving is not a safe thing to do, even though yet I've avoided a crash. Okay? Logic helps us see that if the facts line up enough for us to believe, then that, that tells us it's true. So what happens when we apply this to the Bible? When I start thinking about using logic here and figuring out the facts, I find out some different things. First of all, I'd say that the inaccuracies that we find in the Bible really aren't so inaccurate. Skeptics love to look at the Bible and point out that it simply has the facts wrong. And they say if they can't get it simple, uh, can't get the simple stuff straight, if they can't get these things right, then why worry about the bigger things? Why worry about the theology? But if we view it properly, these inaccuracies can be easily explained. Let, let me give you an example. Out of 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 23, Skeptics like to, like to point out that the dimensions that they list in, in 1 Kings 7 of this basin, okay, there's a round basin, they like to point out that the dimensions just don't match up. It's got a diameter of 10 and a circumference of 30, and if you calculate this out, then the value of pi has to equal 3, except we know that pi does not equal 3. Pi equals 3.14 and all sorts of decimal points. And see, it's inaccurate. The Bible's wrong. They can't do that. And, and we can look at that and say, okay, that's true. It doesn't match up exactly, but that's expecting a level of scientific precision that most of us don't use. If somebody asks you how much money you made last year, and you round it off to the nearest $10,000, are, are you lying? Are you inaccurate? No, you're just, you're just rounding off. Um, if we remember that cubits, the measurements that they were using, aren't quite as precise as meters, and we think about rounding, <laughs> we realize, you know what, that, that makes sense. 30 is close to 31.4. If they're just using round numbers, that's fine. The inaccuracy that we find isn't so inaccurate after all. It's just not that inaccurate. We also find out that points of view ultimately align. Skeptics like to point to the Bible and say that there are conflicts between biblical ideas. In one place it says X, and in another place it says Y, and those things don't match up, and so we can disregard the Bible because it just is full of contradictions. But viewed properly, the contradictions, they actually match up. For example, faith versus works. Some people bring this up, and, and Paul says in Ephesians 2.8 that we are saved by what? We are saved by grace through faith. In James chapter 2, verse 14, James says if somebody has faith but not works... Can his faith save him? And the answer seems to be no. And so we say, well, those two just don't seem to match up. One says faith, one says works. Conf conflict, and so just disregard it. But if you just understand the perspective, it makes sense. You know, Paul is pointing out that none of our works is sufficient to save us. We don't earn our salvation. It's a free gift. James is pointing out that the faith that we have needs to be living and active and not just lip service. And taken together, those two just paint a good picture of what the truth is. We're saved through faith alone, and true faith will end up demonstrating itself by the things that we do. There's no conflict. It's just presenting two sides of the same coin. So those points of view that seem in conflict, really, they ultimately align. We also find out that moral problems 
really aren't a problem. Critics of the Bible sometimes like to take the moral high ground. And they say, the God presented in the Bible does not act like God should act. If he's a good God, why does he allow such terrible things to happen to good people? For example, Joshua and the Israelites in Joshua chapter 6 are commanded to completely destroy the people who live in Jericho. They're supposed to go in there and wipe them all out. And that's tough. That's a tough teaching. But if we stop and think about it, we can figure this out. We can rationalize some of this because God himself explains the reason. He says the people who live in this land are wicked and they're going to turn the Israelites away from worshiping the true God and start worshiping false gods. And God's intent was to set up this model nation in a strategic crossroads and the best chance of success is to start off with a clean slate where where he doesn't have these pagan influences turning his people away from him. And, And so we can think about that and we also have to just stop and say, Am I God? You know, we're, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I don't have all of the knowledge of the situation. Uh, do I know the whole situation? Do I have God's knowledge? Do, does God use my standards of morality, or am I supposed to be using his? When I start to look at this, it, it's tough, but really we can start to come to grip with some of the challenges there. If we decide we believe the rest of the Bible to be trustworthy, the parts that say God is perfectly just, he's good, he's holy, he's loving, then we have to to assume that somehow these actions fit in with that. If we can do that with our own country, we believe that we live in a good country, and when we fought against Hitler in World War II, that was a good thing, despite the fact that some innocent civilians died in the crossfire we can still say we're a good nation because of that. If we can do that with our own nation, shouldn't we at least be willing to do that same thing with God? Based on reconciliation of facts, the Bible seems trustworthy. Do I trust it? Yeah. So when I look at past truth, when I look at past truth, I say, you know what? The Bible faces these everyday tests, and it passes each one. The source seems trustworthy, The story seems believable. The facts line up enough for me to say that it's true. And in everyday life, I would believe something like this. And so when I look at the Bible and the past truth that's presented in there, I can conclude so far that the Bible's true. Okay? Good deal. But that's not all. (laughs) We have to look farther. Because if it's true in the past, that's great. But is it still relevant for today? Truth carries forward from the past into the present. And why does present truth matter? Why does present truth matter? Well, let me tell you. In just a couple of weeks, we face some big elections in the nation. People all across the nation are going to be voting for congressional appointments. And to win their votes, politicians are out there telling their people another thing. They're telling them all sorts of things, a number of things. This one over here is going to help create jobs. This one over here is going to be a fiscal conservative. This one over here is, uh, is going to reject Washington politics. And this one over here is going to do the same thing too. And for us to make the choice correctly of a politician who reflects our values, we have to consider the present truth of their claims. Are they telling the truth for now? Or are they just saying what, what they think we want to hear? By the way, the answer is B, 
They're just saying what we want to hear, um, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> but the, the bottom line is we need to have truth about present events. We need to have that truth about present events because no matter how true something was in the past, if it doesn't carry forward into the present, it won't work. It's like a broken light bulb. If it worked in the past, great, but if it doesn't work now, it's useless. This is important when we look at the Bible because if the Bible has past truth but has no relevance for modern life, then we can relegate it to history. We can put it in the library. We can forget about it. But if it's true for today, the implications for our life are huge. So can we trust the Bible's claims about the present? That's our big question. Again, there's some everyday tests of truth that we can use that will help us out. Okay? The first one has to do with the unexpected. It has to do with the unexpected. Is the information fairy tale? If you watch TV for any length of time, you're bound to see some products that are just, just amazing. They are going to make you thin and strong and smart and funny. And, and that stain that's in your pants that's been there for the last 10 years, it'll take that out too. It's great. Uh, <laughs> I have a, a well-meaning friend of mine that uh, actually bought one of these products for us after the birth of my daughter. And uh, my daughter is, is going to be two in January. You might have seen this product. It's called Your Baby Can Read. Have you seen the commercials for that? Uh, it's, it's great. The commercial shows success stories. Babies reading flashcards at extremely young ages. They're showing it. What's this one? Turtle, that's right. Oh, elephant. Chimpanzee, great. And these babies are reading. It's amazing. And, and it's all because of these wonderful scientifically designed videos. So our friend sends it to us. We get the package in the mail. I see the product. I'm immediately skeptical, but I say, you know, okay, fine. It sounds like a fairy tale, but we'll give it a try. And so we pop in the video, and Cheney sits down. She starts watching this thing. She watches the, the videos. And, and you know what? Um, our baby can't read. We tried, but, but on the good note, she is addicted to videos now. So... <laughs> Uh, but that's what I expect. That's what I expect along the way. I expect from most things, I expect fairy tales. I expect claims that are too good to be true. The truth itself, that would be really unexpected. I'm still waiting for an ad to say that this product will clean a lot, but grease stains, not so much. Uh, I'm waiting for them to say, some people lost 50 pounds on this diet, but you have no willpower, so it's probably going to get you about three or four. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> I believe some things. I believe some things because no one would make that up. No one would make that up. And what happens when I apply that to the Bible? It gives me the unexpected. It gives me the unexpected. Um, fun stuff is excluded. Fun stuff is excluded. If, if the Bible were a sham, I'd expect it to be at least more exciting, right? There are lots of pagan religions that out there that, that, that made life fun. You get to worship God by, by having sex. You get to take vengeance on your enemies. You get to do all sorts of things that we'd like to do. But the Bible is filled with commands that I don't get. It's stuff that we like that's getting regulated. Sex, speech, desires, pride. We're told not to engage in certain activities except within the boundaries that God puts there. And we say, wow, I mean, that, that's hard. He's excluding a lot of fun stuff from life. Why would we make that up? I also see that difficult stuff, difficult stuff is included. If the Bible were made up, I think we'd make it easier. But instead, it has some really difficult teachings in it. Love your neighbor? Fine, if your neighbor's a nice guy. But uh, love your enemies? What? 
You know, that jerk from accounting? That's tough. Give to the needy? Okay, yeah, I can chip in a quarter when I'm passing by the homeless guy, sure. 10%? Seriously? That's tough. This is hard stuff. Difficult stuff is in there. I also find out that the Bible is not about us. The focus is not on me. I would think that something made up would be about how it benefits us. A lie would put us at the center. But the Bible puts us on the periphery. The focus of the Bible is on God, not on us. We're told to put aside the things that we want most in order to do the things that He wants most. We're told to take up our cross, to to put to death our own agendas and follow Him. We're to keep our focus on Him through everything, even heaven. Even heaven, the thing that, that we think should be the culmination of human experience, of human pleasure and joy, it's, it's not even about us. It doesn't even tell us much about what we're going to be doing except worshiping God. He's the focus of the whole thing. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Overall, I would expect a fairy tale for the present when I read the Bible, if it's a lie. But instead, I find the unexpected. I find challenge. I find a focus where I'd not expect. And consequently, I'd say, you know what? This doesn't seem made up. This seems trustworthy. This seems true for the present. Another test for the present that we see is functionality. Is the information functional? Is the information functional? Now, I'm not a doctor. I don't even play one on TV. But I'm reasonably confident about treating some illnesses that I have along the way. I believe that when I have a headache, I should take some ibuprofen. Okay, that's fine. I believe that when I have allergies, I can take a Claritin, and that's going to help me. I believe that when I have a toothache, I just need some cocaine. (laughs) Officially, (laughs) I don't have a diagnosis for these problems along the way. Officially, I, I can't state what chemical reaction takes place when I take an ibuprofen and it goes to my head and helps dull the pain. I don't know how that's happening. But I believe in these treatments because they work. I believe some things because they're simply helpful. In everyday life, I look for things that work. And so what happens when I apply this to the Bible? What happens when I take this test and apply that to the Bible? Well, I find out some things. I see that the Bible shares how to make relationships better. It's coming. There we go. I believe remotes should work if I'm pushing the button. (laughs) The Bible shares how to make relationships better. Uh, if, if this book is from our Creator, it should explain how we function better with others. And it really does. It's filled with ethical teachings, like do not steal. It's filled with relationship principles, that husbands and wives should, should submit to one another and love each other. Uh, societal ideas, take care of those who are in need. It talks about taking care of the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Uh, I hear from people all the time who have tried to put these principles into practice who say, it works. It was hard, but the biblical teaching improved my marriage. Okay, it works. The Bible also shares how to make finances better. Okay, if this is from our provider, it should explain how we function better with our resources. And it does. It's filled with teachings about stewardship, how to properly manage the things that I have. It's filled with teachings about generosity, uh, how we're supposed to give things away uh, to help others. And I hear from people all the time who've tried it, who put these principles into practice, who say it works. It was hard, but biblical teaching helped me get my money under control. Great. The Bible shares how to make me better. It shares how to make me better. If this is from our God, it should explain how we function better with Him. 
And it does. It's filled with instructions and encouragement for our spiritual lives. It spells out how we can have a relationship with him despite our sins. It tells me how I can prepare for a life with God. And I hear from people all the time who have tried to put these principles into practice who say, it works. It was hard, but you know what? This really improved my relationship with God. From a functional standpoint, this stuff seems true. The Bible seems trustworthy in practice. So I have to consider that to be evidence of its truth for the present. There's one more present test of truth that I'd like to consider this morning. Um, if we can go to the next slide. And that is, does it match real life? Does it match real life? Now this might not seem much different from the previous test. But there's a key difference here. And I want to explain. Uh, go to the next slide. If you listen to country music at all, you may have heard a fairly recent song by the artist Kenny Chesney. It's entitled The Boys of Fall, and that song presents a, a really great picture of small-town football teams. Um, vivid descriptions of the experience of being on the field, the camaraderie of being part of a team. Uh, from a functional standpoint, I'd say that it works. It describes a lot of towns, like where I grew up in northwest Kansas, small towns that had football teams. It, it describes it. It works. Okay? But the song went a little bit deeper for me. One of the verses says the following. It says, In little towns like mine, that's all they've got. Newspaper clippings fill the coffee shops. The old men will always think they know it all. Young girls dream about the boys of fall. And as I, as I listened to that, that verse, it was like a time warp. I was, I was back there in high school. You know, and I, I'm thinking about the experience, and I, I'm, I'm smelling the smells of the field, and hearing the sounds, and hearing the cheers, and, and I'm thinking of all this time uh, about my dad, sitting at our, our local, we had a drugstore with a, an old-fashioned uh, old uh, fountain there, okay, and he used to go there, and he used to sit there at the old shop there with his, his buddies from town, drinking his black coffee, talking about what was going on, complaining about the coach and the decisions he's making, and saying how they could have done it better if we just run a single-wing formation, that would have worked out better. And, and he's talking about this, and I, I just I go back, and it's such a vivid glimpse into my own past that I, I broke down in tears in the, in the parking lot because my, my dad passed away five years ago. My dad passed away in, in 05, and that song just sitting there all of a sudden just brought this flood of memories back. And I got to think about my dad. And I got to hear him in my, in my mind's, uh, mind's ear <laughs> along the way. It wasn't just a functional description of life in a small town with small town football. It was my life. It was mine. And I believe some things, as it says in the next slide, I believe some things because I have lived them. Forget about anything else. This is part of real life. It's my life. So what happens when I apply this test to the Bible? What happens when I apply this test to the Bible? You get my story. That's what happens. I don't have a super dramatic conversion experience. I grew up in a church-going family. I was baptized at age 10. I went to church camp. I walked the straight and narrow. I go to Bible college. I worked at churches, and I end up here at this conference. Okay? But the words of this book, the words of this book right here, have become part of who I am. I can testify to the things that it says. I've lived the results of obedience. I have felt the consequences of sin. 
I have been able to worship God in the way that it says. I've been on my knees in worship. I've spent time in awe of God. I've felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This is my story. It's me. And I know what it's done for me. It's personal. And there's some things in life that that's just the way it is. You, you only know it's true by experiencing it. As a parent, if you've never been a parent, you will never fully understand what it's like to love your kids until you have them yourself. You won't. You can try to tell people, you can explain all you want, but you will never know it until you live it. And it's the same thing here. You will never know the full truth of the Bible until you live it. Your story, I don't know. I don't know your experience. Only you can speak about your experience. But think about what you know from trying to live the Bible, if you've done it. Think about, are the failures or faults in life your own, or are they the Bible's? You know what's helped you to succeed. I can't share anything about what you have gone through. Only you can do that. But your experience can help confirm that the Bible matches real life. You'll just have to take my word for it, or take your own. But the Bible passes this test. It matches real life. So in matters of present truth, then, the Bible works. The Bible works. It matches real life. It's functional. It's unexpected. It is true for the present. There's one last thing, though, that's pretty important. Okay? It's true for the past. It's true for the present. But we also see the Bible is true for the future. And that's no less important because future truth matters. Future truth matters. If you don't believe me, ask any small business owner about the tax year for 2011. <laughs> if we don't know what the tax rate is going to be for your business, you don't know how to function. You don't know what to do as far as you know, planning, as far as hiring, as far as what to do with your profits. You don't know what to do there. But future truth matters. We need to know the truth about future events. And that's true for the Bible too. The Bible talks about the future a lot. It talks about it a whole lot. Depending on how you classify prophecy, at least a quarter of the Bible's content talks about things that were and some that still are in the future. It's stuff that's way bigger than tax policy, too. The question is, can we trust the Bible's claims about the future? There are some more everyday tests of truth, and we'll run through them real quick. Um, you know, do they have expertise? That's one everyday test of truth. Do they have expertise? You know, I think about cooking chefs. You know, people that, that cook things. I'm terrible in the kitchen. I have no idea what happens when you take this ingredient and mix it with this. And, and I know usually it, the results aren't good. <laughs> but a chef can tell you if you do this and this and this, you get this result in the future. They know it. They already have the expertise to tell you that. All I know is if you add bacon, it's going to be good. That's the only thing I can tell you. Um, but I believe some things just because I'm not that smart. I'm not that smart. I'm not the expert. And when I look to the Bible, I say, does it have anyone with expertise about the future that I could listen to? And the answer is, yeah, God. <laughs> listen to God here. God has power. Throughout the entire Bible, God shows that he has power over things. He says he is sovereign over his creation. He controls the fate of men. He controls the fate of nations. If God can influence the future for those things, I, I would call that expertise. He's there. He's an expert. God has knowledge. Throughout the Bible, God shows that he knows all these things that are to come. Even places where it doesn't ex say explicitly that God was going to cause an event, it says that he knew that it was coming up. He knows the hearts of men and how they will react. He knows the plans of men along the way. If God can foretell the future, that's expertise. He has a purpose. Throughout the Bible, I see that he knows what he's planning. Not only is he sovereign and in charge, but he knows where he's going. 
The entire Bible has a whole story that focused on this theme of Jesus and where he was going. Jesus is coming. Jesus has come. He is coming again. That is the theme of the entire book. And God is able to plan this all out and orchestrate it. And I call that expertise. He knows what is going. It seems silly not to trust the expert. And the Bible's got a pretty good expert about the future. It passes that test. Another test has to do with accuracy. Accuracy. Has it been accurate in the past? I think about a television show called Storm Chasers. If you've ever watched it, it's fun. These guys go around chasing tornadoes with their, their weather vehicles to try to get data. And, and it shows these two different crews. One has a, a guy who's successful all the time and another guy who blows it, <laughs> who can't seem to get the information right. If I'm going to go out there and I'm going to hit a storm with somebody, I want the successful guy with me because he's been accurate in the past. I believe some things because they're usually right. And anytime you want to talk about the future, you want someone who's going to be right. So what happens when I apply this to the Bible? Well, guess what? It's been right. It's been accurate. Prophecies have been right in the past. If it were made up by men, I'd expect it to be, to be full of stuff that fails. And the Bible says so itself. In, in Deuteronomy 18, it says, You may say to yourself, How can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. But guess what? The prophets in the Bible, they were right. They were right. Prophets predicted all sorts of future things. They predicted uh, that Assyria and Babylon would swing in and conquer Israel and Judah decades before it happened. Prophets predicted that the Israelites would return from an exile after 70 years in captivity, and they did. Prophets predicted the appearance of the Messiah and shared details that would apply to his life, like the virgin birth and being born in Bethlehem, and that he'd come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and we see all these things happening, and we see the manner of his death being prophesied, and it fulfills exactly the way it's supposed to. Those prophecy success stories aren't just chance. The odds are too big. You can't just say, well, it just randomly happened that way. There's no way it could happen unless it was a truthful, accurate prediction, not just a guess. The Bible shows in past predictions it's been accurate, and it's accurate in the present too. It continues on today. All I have to say is Israel, it exists. You know, I mean, that, what else do you have to say? What other group comes back after centuries a millennium away from its homeland and, and restores its nation. The, uh, the uh, Ottoman Empire, no. The Huns, no. Israel, yeah, because the prophecies are there. The accuracy of the Bible in regard to prophecies is amazing, and its accuracy makes me believe that it's true. And it leads me to the final test, the final test of truth here. Does it provide hope? Does it provide hope? It's been said that all natural desires exist because there's a natural fulfillment for that desire. I desire food because somewhere sustenance exists in this universe. I desire water because somewhere in this universe it exists for me to drink. I desire intimacy because companionship can be found in the universe. The desire proves the existence of the source. In other words, I believe some things because I want them. I believe some things because I want them, and so they must exist. So what happens when I apply that to the Bible? It tells me that my hopes... My hopes, which seem to have no obvious remedy here on earth, my hopes will have fulfillment someday. That's what it says. Hope will end because our hopes will be fulfilled. Dead people will live. Dead people will live. My hope to see people like my dad will cease to be hope and it will become reality. Problems will be finished. Injustice 
will be eliminated. Poverty will be wiped out. Health care will be unnecessary. The environment will be perfected. Crime and suffering will be gone. Our bodies will be glorified. All these problems will be taken care of. The hope is fulfilled. Relationships will be perfected. My desire to see God finally, that God-shaped hole in us that people talk about, that's going to be fulfilled. He's going to finally become tangible. And the Bible seems trustworthy because it shares hope that I cannot find anywhere else. More specifically, it explains why my hope exists in the first place. God designed me that way. It's there. In matters of future truth, the Bible passes these everyday tests. We see all these tests. We see that it has expertise, accuracy, and hope. And so in addition to knowing that the Bible is true for the past and that it's true for the present, I can say, you know what? It seems pretty true for the future too. I must agree that the Bible is faithful and true. Every day, every day we make life-altering decisions about truth. You step in your car and you say, my brakes will work without testing them. That's true that my brakes will work. It's true that the signs out there on the interstate say that this exit gets me off at McKinney. That's true. I make a decision that it's not going to just steer me off a cliff. I decided it's true that when I turn on the radio, it's not going to electro- electrocute me. You know, just, I believe these things. I use common sense about everyday truth. And you know what? If I use common sense, everyday test of truth with the Bible, it's pretty clear that this book right here is true. It's been shown to be reliable and trustworthy in the past. It's been shown to be reliable and trustworthy in the present. It's been shown to be reliable and trustworthy in the future This is true. It's true. And since it's true, I would be an idiot not to listen to what it says. If it's true, I need to base my actions off of that. And the Bible tells me how to live right now. It tells me how to treat others right now. It shows how I should relate to God. It shows me everything about the right here, right now. I should do that. And you know what? It talks about my future. It talks about your future. And if it's true, then it's true about what's to come. And it tells me what it's coming. It tells me what to expect. It tells me about the return of Jesus Christ. It tells me about the culmination of history. It's coming. And there's future, and there's hope, and it's there. And the rest of the speakers today are going to be telling you about that truth. This stuff is true, and if it's true, we need to listen to it. We need to see that, and we see our future hope that's in there. Since it's true, listen. Figure out how your future fits in with the truth right here. Just listen to the truth. And I want to close with one passage because this is the truth. Jesus says, look, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to repay each person according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us truth. We thank you that you've given it to us. We can sit here and we can read. We can know how to have a relationship with you. We can know how you've acted in the past. We can know how you're going to act in the future. We thank you for revealing that to us. We just ask, Father, that through your Holy Spirit that you could give us the wisdom 
to hold on to that truth, to use it as the basis for our lives, and to give us that hope that someday we will see your son face to face. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you very much.